And I hope you'll enjoy listening to my husband interviewing Kate Adie, an extraordinary journalist, TV presenter, and full of so many fascinating stories. Well, hello, I'm Lord Carnarvon, and we're in the study of, of Highclere Castle. And I'm with Kate Aidy, the world-renowned BBC's chief news correspondent for many years, and of course involved in many of the war zones of, of, around the world. And we're thinking back on World War II, and in some ways, World War I, and really because my great-grandmother founded a hospital here in World War I, and therefore was a leading woman early in the war. If you look at the position of women, particularly in the 20th century, the earlier time, World War I, your grandmother was part of an extraordinary movement. Well, was it a movement? A sort of a whole rush of enthusiasm and determination amongst women in those days, at the start of World War I, to do something. They didn't want to be just left behind. There wasn't a question that they'd be asked about the war and running it or starting it because women weren't in parliament they had didn't have the vote but when war began and all the men joined up these women thought what can I do to do my bit your grandmother was part of a very large number of women who went into nursing some of who turned their houses into hospitals others who went abroad right across all the theatres of war and some of them were complete amateurs just volunteering and finding themselves in the thick of it just behind the front lines and in some instances instance under fire these women changed life along with huge numbers of others during that war who all took up jobs from everything like the munitions factories to engineering and everything else they changed life for women because they showed that women could do it and come the second world war again a challenge for women and there wasn't a single woman really in this country who wasn't affected by that war even if it was someone who didn't join one of the enormous number of organizations such as women in uniform in nursing women who um, were running canteens women who went into engineering and munitions women oh extraordinary number of things that women did ordinary housewives at home if I may call it that that's what they'd be described at then had to put up with rationing they had to have blackout curtains they had to have very, they queued for every single thing they went shopping for long queues always carrying a little string bag just in case and these women also were possibly going to be bombed out of their houses in some parts of the country there wasn't a woman who wasn't involved somehow in the war and there again lots of these women were pioneers they showed that women could shoulder responsibility, face the worst of circumstances, and were essential to winning the war. Yes, well, just not far south of here, Southampton, the edge of Southampton, Eastley, was the chief spitfire-making area. And, of course, they had to move the factories round and round to avoid bombs, and women were very much involved in the, in the manufacturing side of things. They did that, they manufactured the ammunition, uh, they made the uniforms, they uh, went onto the land and grew the food, they went into the woods and were timber gills, they drove lorries, they learned different skills, 
Some of them went abroad for all kinds of reasons, from the NAFI to special operations agents dropped in behind enemy lines. It's a fantastic story. I visited that extraordinary airfield, Tempsford, in Bedfordshire, where inside this old brick building they have the memorials to those ladies who were lost having landed in France. Mm. Well, of course, in World War II, you mentioned the Battle of Britain. There were very capable lady pilots, but they were just used for shifting aircraft around rather than pressing the button and firing at being on the sharp end. But do you think things have changed in that, in that well, way? Well, they have, because I managed some years ago um, to interview one of the elderly um, uh, ladies then who had been one of the ATA, the Air Transport Auxiliary. And she was absolutely, she, she was an absolute firecracker. And she described coming um, onto an airfield in the dead of night, a small strip in front of um, a factory shed manufacturing um, the planes there and then and being pushed out onto the strip to be flown to the RAF stations. And I said, well, what was it like? She said, well, you just handed over your chit, got a chit for the plane, you got inside and I said, well, how did you know how to fly it if it was a new sort of plane every few months? She said, well, you sort of pressed everything and twiddled everything and then just sort of grabbed hold of the stick and went, off we go. I thought, that sounds frightening. She said, not as frightening when you're in the air and you're not quite sure how to land it. And these women landed at RAF airfields, handed over the aircraft, and she said to me, many a time I handed over after a freezing flight in those little aircraft, you know, all exposed, soaked to the skin, late at night, having flown for maybe an hour or so. And so I said, thank you very much. And you said, any chance of a cup of tea? No, I'm sorry, um, uh, ladies are not allowed. And that was the degree of prejudice. And not one woman was ever allowed to fly, as they say, within the Air Force during World War II. Well, I'm sure they'd have done a fantastic job if they were actually fighting with guns and ammunition and having a go, because, of course, that actually does now happen in, in their forces. Women are fighting in their forces now, aren't mm, they? I know things have changed so much. And all during that war, the, one of the things you, uh, you have to be very aware of today, looking back on it, is that the view was that men would protect women, therefore women did not need to defend. That is why... Only a handful of women, some of the incredibly brave young women who worked for special operations. They were dropped into France by parachute. Yes, they were some of the handful of women who were taught how to use a weapon. Winston Churchill himself was against any idea of women going near the fighting or being taught to use arms. And so therefore, everything you look at is women doing something other than the actual fighting, even though they were often in the combat areas, the nurses, the people even with the NAFI in Burma, all over the world, in the Middle East, in North Africa, there were women there, nurses, all kinds of people in um, secondary roles. They went through the rigors of war, but it was only to do the other sort of job. Mind you, they did those brilliantly. And when you read about the conditions women lived in and what they did and how they did it, again, they advanced women's 
as it were, status in society by showing what they could do. Well, you've, you've often written and spoke about the, the misery of, of war, and today's wars have been as terrible as ever. What do you think of the recent situations in wars like Syria, where, where civilians are, are on the receiving end of so much damage? Look, we must get rid of the old idea of battlefields. The idea right through medieval times that you sort of had an appointed time and the armies of professional soldiers arrive on onwards, right through the centuries. Nowadays, war, to borrow from one of our senior generals, war is amongst the people. And therefore, men may get weaponry. They often join militias, groups. They're concentrating on certain kinds of fighting. But what happens to the towns is that women, children, elderly people are there. And that's when the bombers and the artillery does it work. And when you think of all the pictures that have been on television in the last few years, Syria, Iraq and so on, uh, Yemen today, Libya today, the people you see picking through the ruins are the housewives, the grannies, the wives. Nobody has given them a gun, same prejudice since World War II that we met there. They've had to stay, and they are in the front line. In fact, there isn't such a thing as a military front line in most conflicts now. People attack the civilian population, the nation, as it were, and it's done on purpose. There's no mistakes here. They intend to lower morale, crush society, and that's what they do. So women are, it's thought, dying in larger numbers in present conflicts than men. I, I'm sure, and we understa understand that as a terrible situation, which in a way leads on to children and refugees and children without parents. And we, read, we, we hear of these appalling stories of ever more children trapped on islands in the Aegean wanting a home in Europe. How do you think the world is treating these people now? Well, um, if we believe in society and human beings doing their best, you have to think that what makes us tick as human beings is care for others. That's what lies at the basis of a decent society. And not just your immediate family. The more sophisticated a society, the more education we have, the more we realise we're all interconnected. And that goes for the environment as well. And we have to care for people. And if you care for people, they remember it. I think this is a tremendous lesson, actually, from World War II. When I was growing up, some years after that war, I still remember going to the newsreel theatres, which we had in those days, and seeing lines of people on the newsreels. And this was 10 years after World War II finished of people who were refugees trying to get home or trying to make it to another place. It's not a new idea, particularly in the last 100 years. And time and again, I've met people who were shown kindness then, who took up um, offers of shelter and help in other countries and never forget it because their lives 
they can start to rebuild again. And I think you have to remember that, that the refugee argument isn't entirely negative. It should be positive to say, if you help people, more good will happen. I'm sure because they could be, um, uh, in, the, in those huddled masses of misery, there may well be amazing and talented people there. I, I think we have to remember that they do deserve a, a new home. But just generally, on, 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 on mankind over the last 60, 70 years has had extraordinary advances in every type of technology, medicine, and progress. But yet again, another horrible, small, tribal war has only just started in, in Armenia, Azerbaijan, in the last 10 days. Oh, and don't forget, there's also <laughs> Libya, there's Yemen. Um, there yeah, are they're countries. all appalling. It's just another one. But, but part but, of it is that we hear more about it. If you have media covering the world, you get more information. Um, think of people in Victorian times who, until the Crimean War in the 1850s, uh, most wars that the British were involved with were over before anybody knew they would start it. And they certainly didn't get daily battle information or casualty information. Today, we hear it almost instantaneously. And so we become more conscious of it. On the other hand, all the technology that we're using to hear and see that, we should be using to say, how can we make the world better? We should know more about things. We should be made, made we should, as democratic um, people in democratic systems, countries, we should be putting more pressure on to say, we can stop this. We can push for negotiations, cease fire. We can help people. We can say, can we do something? We can't intervene in every fire that's ablaze, but we can actually suggest how we can help to put things out to make things better. There's so much that modern technology can do, that modern, for example, because war always brings terrible, terrible um, injuries and, and trouble. We have now amazing technology technology for surgery, for helping people, for keeping people alive. We need to sort of remember we've all, we're all part of one tiny planet. Go out at night, look at the stars and realize we're a minuscule speck in this fantastic universe. And yet, boy, look how we've come from primeval times. And we should use everything that we've got and learned to make life better and better right. It sounds a bit Pollyanna-ish, but I think you've got to be positive. You've got to say, I can make a difference. A lot of people think, well, what can I do? Everyone can at least check on their neighbor, give someone a cup of tea, put a pound into a charity box, and occasionally write a letter to an MP or stand for parliament. You can do things in a democracy, and so many of us could do more, me included. Quite a few wars probably are going to be part of problems with resources and water and pollution and food, that kind of thing. Do you think we are looking after our planet well enough, or we all ought to think about that as much as... Anywhere? Well, there are far more people now who know what dangers are posed to the planet. There are people who are absolutely expert in what we're doing with food waste, with the wrong kinds of agricultural 
practices, the sort of things that people had to learn 2,000 years ago to change, to make things better, uh, to improve crops, to improve food distribution, to make sure that fewer people are hungry, to know that we mustn't leave the planet a filthy mess. We know what belches out poison, particulates, muck into rivers, sewage into, in, in, into the sea. We should do something about it. We know about these things. Lots of people do. It just needs all of us to say, what are our priorities? And then we join hands and we make sure that it's made better. Well, you're absolutely right, Kay. And if you have that much optimism that man as an animal can somehow cooperate. You have to at mm -hmm. times like this. We're all in it. We're having a very tough time. Everyone's got difficulties. Everyone's got, nearly everybody's got worries. And you have to say, actually, we're an amazing creature, the human being. We can make things better. Look at all the things around us, which even a hundred years ago, people would say, gosh, what's that? Um, it's a screen which shows pictures from the other side. But what do you mean you can talk to someone in South America just like that? Look what we've done. We can keep going doing that. We just need each one of us to do a little. Do you think the Although it's an appalling situation, the current common enemy of the virus, the coronavirus, will make us somehow think more in a positive direction. In, in well, one of the things you can look at, there's nothing particularly good about a virus, but you can say that we learn our lessons from it. We learned from the Black Death how to reorganise our agriculture, improve how people lived a bit in the um, 14th century and so on. And also, we changed the way we were running the country. It had, in the end, we learned to make something positive of it. And I think this might be an opportunity. I think you're... you're probably right there, there, Kate, with all the upheavals that are going on at the moment. And I wish everyone um, well and to be safe. But thank you very, very much for this really interesting and, and encouraging comments for us all in this terrible time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. I don't want you to miss out on the next one, so please do try and press the subscribe button.